0: Hello
1: out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McClain. And Flynn, we start tonight with some news. The 2023 postponed dates are now rescheduled. They start in March, and we certainly hope Bruce will be feeling better and the 2024 can go off without a hitch.
2: Let's hope they start off in, uh, in late March in Phoenix and run... Through November, November twenty second and Vancouver. And there's a nice big gap there with the uh, with the expect expectation that they're going to announce a, a European leg, and I guess for, for May, June, and July. And the October month of October is also also off. So I guess those are the big places where uh where additional dates could be announced.
1: Yeah, I don't know if October will be filled in. Of course, in twenty twenty three, October was also going to be completely off, so we'll see. The one spot on the schedule that is open and glaringly so is Labor Day weekend, which one would presume will be additional shows at MetLife. With Philly shows and a show in D.C. and and Baltimore, of course, he's in the Northeast. You have to expect he's going to play New Jersey.
2: Yeah, that's just easy money right there on the table for them, and it will be a great way to wrap up another summer.
1: And very notably, there's a change in terms of how they schedule the tour, of course, In 2023, it was very compressed. We talked about that, especially those July shows in Europe. In 2024, they have now given into reality and there are going to be two days between every show at least, except for Philly, which had already been rescheduled. And I think that that is a huge plus now. It's going to make it a little bit harder for those of us who travel to shows. And it's also going to keep the band in hotels in certain locations longer.
2: But I don't think they had any other choice. None, none whatsoever. Uh, they need the extra day of rest. Obviously, last summer, as you as you said, in Europe, when, it, when the heat really kicked in, they had trouble uh, or Bruce seemed to be having trouble getting through the shows. So hopefully uh, this will give them that extra time to, to rest and be ready for the next one.
1: Yeah. We had talked about this before because other acts his age are not playing anywhere near the number of shows they attempted to play in 2023. Even Pearl Jam, I think I've mentioned before, they haven't played more than 38 shows since 2016. And here at the approaching the age of 74, Bruce was trying to play 90 plus (laughs) shows. It seemed to be a, a very difficult task, even if everyone had remained healthy. And of course, we're living in a time of COVID and now horribly he's dealing with these peptic
2: ulcers. Yeah, obviously all of us want him to, to get through this this leg and or the next year. And what I find funny is that how are they going to deal with all the Nugs downloads? <laughs> I feel like they, they offer those whole legs in advance and, and the shows keep, keep getting moved around. So that's going to be uh, fun to keep an eye on. So they didn't email the people who bought entire legs addressing the delays? Not to my knowledge. I certainly didn't get one, and I uh, haven't heard of anybody else getting one either. It seems like they probably should have, or at least refunded that part of the package for the shows that weren't played, but well, I, think, I guess no, not. No, the shows that were people who bought the whole first U.S. leg, you know, Albany and Columbus and Mohegan Sun, when those shows are finally played, they will get the download
1: i understand that but you're delaying them a year and a half so and it just <laughs> seems like that perhaps they could have credited people's accounts or something for those until the time that the shows were actually played i it, that seems reasonable but i guess that's not what was
2: done well they, they sold the whole leg these shows have been moved to another time you'll, you'll get your shows okay i don't i don't i don't see any need for a refund here
1: Let's not get sidetracked. But the people who are have rescheduled shows in terms of their tickets. Now, of course, they may not be able to make those shows. But everyone has a chance for a refund. It just seems like that's a long time to hold people's <laughs> money for a download. But uh, again, I don't want to get too sidetracked. But
2: hey, man! But you it know, seems
1: like they should address that.
2: Hey, I sold a pair of tickets for Philadelphia on StubHub, and obviously, their policy is you don't. The seller doesn't get their money until after the shows happen. So. They're going to have my money for at least another 10 months or something. So it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, that's
1: actually a flaw in this whole secondary market thing, which is a totally a discussion for another day. (laughs) But I understand why they moved to the system of not paying till after the events, because they almost got crushed by the tens of thousands of cancellations when the pandemic hit. But still, in a case like your Philly show... That is ridiculous. There should be some kind of way to deal with that, but again, that's another show and perhaps another entire <laughs>
2: topic entirely. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And speaking of disappointments, let's move on to uh the lack of a fall release. I think it's pretty safe to say, in, in mid October, that we're not getting anything, we're not getting uh the soul covers album volume two, and we're definitely not getting tracks too. So that's kind of a Bitter pill to swallow, but hopefully twenty four will be better in in lots of ways.
1: Right, I was about to chime in. We're at least not getting them at the moment, which is a hundred percent. That's now. what I meant. We're not getting and, it this fall. I, we hold out hope for the future. Always
2: hold out future uh, future hope for for tracks two. It
1: does seem kind of ridiculous now that we should even be talking about tracks two. On one hand, you've got the fact that Bruce has discussed it publicly, given details of it. So it's not like when we first started this show, it hadn't been talked about really publicly. So people were like, does that really exist? Now, obviously, we know it exists. The man has talked about it numerous times. But at this point, it almost seems like, okay, let's not discuss it again until they announce it because it's just... Over and over again.
2: Yeah, it's uh, he's been teasing us about this for at least three years. Uh, And let's just, let's just end the teasing, but apparently they want to extend it as much as possible. And I just hope it's not a total letdown when we get it. But I'm expecting to be happy. I want to hear new, new original Bruce music. And that would be getting five discs worth at one time would be pretty amazing.
1: Now, I don't even want to talk about any info, rumors, whatever it is. It almost, again, seems like we shouldn't even mention it. The one thing I do wonder is, would there be any chance that they would ever release a box set that wasn't positioned for the holidays? As we know, every one of Bruce's box sets has been positioned for the holidays. And that's another year wait at the minimum. And probably he'll come up with like, some kind of covers record or he wants to do like uh, uh,
2: music on a harp or something (laughs) and then tracks two will be pushed back another year god that would be awful but the reality is and i wish that bruce and and, and john landau would acknowledge this is that the hardcore fans are going to buy this whether it's released in november or may or june or april or february anytime we're going to buy it yes right off now i guess there is an argument to be made that there will be a a significant number of purchases made as as gifts uh for people but that it will still be on the shelf in in november if it's released earlier in the year so it could still be a gift it's just that the the, re- the recipient will just have to wait that much longer to actually hear it look it's typical to release these things at the holiday time the
1: billy joel big vinyl set is coming out positioned for this year's holiday dylan has a box set coming out so that's not unusual but it I think the one thing I would say now in regards to Tracks 2 in particular, but any of these other projects, either stop mentioning them or give the fans some updates on what's happening. Okay, you decided not to release Tracks 2 now, I get it. But would it kill anyone to give an update, even if it's by Bruce's Twitter, to just say Bruce talked about Tracks 2 last year in an interview with Rolling Stone? We want to update people on what's happening with it. Uh, once it's out in the open and he's talked about it so specifically, it, it's just kind of a tease, really. And it's and it, it, obviously frustrating and a bit annoying.
2: Well, yes. Yes, it is. I would take another, another, another approach. And that's something my, my friend Jonathan actually mentioned is, you know, you got five discs worth of material coming out at some point. Why don't you give us a couple of tracks, Uh, put it, put it on your website, maybe leak it to not leak it, but make it streamable on on the various services. And let's just let us hear like two, three, four songs and just kind of that would probably hold us over. I'm sure it might get us even more excited for the full release, but it's something and it would be something interesting to talk about, something interesting to hear. That's a great idea and completely agree with it. I
1: wonder what is going on like this. The work gets done. Obviously, they've spent quite a bit of time and effort and probably money on these things. And they know fans want to hear it. Just put it out already. Uh, Nobody's getting any younger.
2: Uh, Yeah, you're you're right. And the the longer they wait, the less people are going to care. And they got to pull that trigger soon. Uh, Maybe maybe that's what happened this year is that they hemmed and hawed throughout the throughout the summer and said, uh, I don't know what to do. And and then finally, when they made a decision or or maybe the, the deadline just passed and they hadn't done anything, and well, there you go.
1: Well, vinyl production, I believe, remains a problem. So if you don't have a lead time on something this big, it's probably, even from Sony, difficult for them. But at, at a certain point, I, I think that they need to put this out. Now, there's also only the Strong Survive 2 hanging out there. I don't think there's anywhere near the same level of interest about that. <laughs> is the there? Is there, is there any level um,
2: of interest among the, among the fan base for that? Maybe one, two people, maybe?
1: I don't think so. But <laughs> just, it, look, it's obviously something that Bruce seems to care about. And if he wants to put it out, I'll listen to it at least once. Here. And e- even there, too, that's something that could easily be fed to the streaming services. We know that's not going to sell big numbers of physical copies. So if you want, get that out there. And I don't know, it's going to be interesting to see also, because of course, some of this is relevant to potentially what happens next year. Is he going to do the same set? Do they release some kind of music that potentially could be played? I don't think that that's tracks two or only the strong survive two, because clearly that doesn't seem to fit the mold of what he's doing these days. But it's just, it really is, uh, as we say, frustrating and a a bit mysterious. So hopefully all of this stuff, especially Tracks 2, will
2: be out in the near future. They should just drop the the Strong Survive 2 on on a streaming service just one day. Maybe even ambush us and just put it out there because, uh, (laughs) again, I don't think they're going to sell a lot of copies, as you said. And just, just let us hear it. Bruce had some fun with it. So let us have some fun listening to it. And next, Bruce did return to From My Home to Yours
1: on Sirius's E Street Radio, and I listened to it. It was a lot of fun. He had on four friends from his high school days who he used to play music with, and Mayor Mike Wilson, Donnie Powell, Mike Demansky, and Craig Caprione, and they had a great discussion about the music they grew up on and how they became musicians, and I,
2: I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was interesting listening to them uh, talk about what songs really did it for them what groups and obviously they focused on on the beatles that's not a surprise at all and but they really talked about how it was everybody was was in a band at that point and they had the battle of the bands and i guess they kind of moved uh, in between to each other's bands and it just sounded like a lot of fun from those days it did and uh, before we talk about the substance of the musical conversation
1: bruce did open the show talking about his bitch of a bellyache <laughs> and it's just it's rough to hear that, and I, again, it just makes me amazed at what we saw at MetLife last month that he played those three shows in what must have been some real distress. So, uh, just amazing. Well, he also
2: ended the show with uh, thanking his fans for for the patience, for their patience, or our patience at this point, and that he hopes to or he will be out there next year, and they will be at the top of their game.
1: One of the things that really caught my ear when I was listening, they were talking about, I want to hold your hand, and the first time they all heard the Beatles. And what struck me is, I don't think we've ever talked about on this show how we first heard Bruce, have we? I don't
2: think we have. So shall we do so now? Uh, (laughs) Is that your point? (laughs) We
1: might as well. I I was fascinated because, uh, you know, one of the guys had heard the Beatles for the first time on the Ed Sullivan Show, and Bruce was talking about how he had heard them before. But for me, I started thinking back to the first time I heard Bruce. And it actually goes back to, I believe, middle school. I must have been 11, yeah, 11 years old. And a kid brought in, we used to be in music class, and you'd be allowed to bring in some music for the class to hear. And one of the kids had a brother who was a big Springsteen fan. And I was sort of sitting in the back that day. And I'll never forget this, because the kid brought in a 45 And the teacher put it on the player and the song started playing and it was born to run. And it was literally like a lightning bolt hit me. I was like, what, what is this? And then from there, I was like so revved up. I went out and I got my parents to buy me the born to run cassette. I played that thing from Thunder Road to Jungle Land until it basically wore out. And it was just like, this magical thing, and it, it sent me on this ride that obviously continues to this day. And, and then from there, I, I remember I got also greetings on cassette, and that one I wasn't anywhere near as enamored with. But the the seed had been planted with Born to Run, and and then about a year later, Hungry Heart was released. And then from there, I was
2: completely hooked. Uh, too bad you couldn't go to the Nassau Coliseum shows that year. <laughs> oh, don't bring that up, you. No, you annoy me yeah. with that. Well, i my journey wasn't didn't exactly start with uh, with the bang as your as yours did. I think I've mentioned before I'm a I was a huge top forty guy back in listening to the radio back in the in the mid eighties, and it was this kind of thing where I would hear songs and I'd be like, okay, well that's that artist and that's that artist it's like, and so I would say I would see like, like Dancing in the Dark cover me cool songs, cool songs, Born in the USA cooler song. And this kind of snowballed from there. And a, and a friend of mine in one of my classes did did say, "Hey Flynn, this song is for you." It's like I want to change my clothes, my hair, my face. I'm like, "Yeah, I think that's everybody's song in junior high school." But uh, that did hit me pretty hard. And kind of, I got the album Born in the USA not too long afterwards, and just kind of borrowed the river, bought darkness, and just kind of went from there. And and, th- and this was all happening, I guess, eighty five, eighty six. So by the time Live seventy five eighty five came out, I was uh, I was uh, I was bugging people with my obsessiveness, <laughs> to say the least. I think there were a lot of people who were like that, me included. Yes, and and I like, I like to say that I got on the bandwagon, the Born in the USA bandwagon, back at the time and i'm i'm still I'm still writing that thing and never got off. Some would say I'm kinda of driving it.
1: well, there is this show that we're doing, and apparently some people listen to, so that should make us both happy,
2: <laughs> yes, very happy and we appreciate everyone who, who listens we do and uh, getting back to from my home to yours, was there anything else in the episode that you wanted to discuss? Yeah, it was just fun listening to them reminisce and if one of them became mayor and one of them became a one of the biggest rock stars on the planet, so it's a little different than listening to our uh, to our parents or any other group of friends uh, talk about that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, you think of Bruce in the mid '60s and what he's become today. Uh, I I wonder what the other guys think because it's got to be so amazing for them. Uh, he's a friend of theirs, and they've. Uh, it sounds like I think they've remained friends over the years, and. And now he is this megastar, and he has been for forty years. It, it it's got to be pretty odd. Yeah, for them.
2: I've often thought about that. How did those guys like George Thies? How did he look at Bruce and say, "You know, we re- I recruited him into my band, and now he's on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and, and then a few years later Rolling Stone. What the hell happened to me? I mean, I'm sure he didn't he didn't have those those kind, kinds of he wouldn't say them anyway. But I'm sure he may have had some kind of thoughts and. That's what I would imagine that they would they would be thinking.
1: Oh, I'm sure that's natural for anyone who actually was a professional musician. I don't know that these guys actually ever became professional musicians, but someone like George Thies, yeah, you're sitting there and you're always thinking, wow, did I miss a break? Uh, but I'm sure they also recognized that Bruce's supreme talent was something that none of them had and really... Nobody has, uh, you know, there's a handful of people on the planet with the level of talent like Bruce has. And that's one of the reasons why his story is so interesting. If you think about back to right before Born to Run and the pressure he was under, if he didn't produce there, and let's say the label had kicked him off, uh, would he have landed in another label? Would he have wound up back in New Jersey? could the whole story have been missed we'll never know because it's a what if but it you know does talent always
2: rise to the top i i don't know well, the i answer think you're missing one little tidbit um i don't think i mean sure he yep. was talented but what from what everyone has said including himself he was obsessive with playing um i mean that's all he did uh i mean in his room and and throughout his teenage years and then as he went, even after his parents moved out he still kept playing and he that was his life um uh, George Thies got married you know he he got his girlfriend i guess he got his girlfriend pregnant according i mean for that story that that Bruce told and he had to get married at age 19 so he wasn't he may not have been as obsessive as Bruce or Bruce's was just uh he just kept plugging ahead 10 12 hours a day and uh, obviously if you're married and with a kid you you can't do that
1: No, you do make an excellent point. And of course, we've talked about this at other times, and it's in Bruce's autobiography. The fact that he remained so singularly focused, we know it affected his relationships deeply. And that clearly is different for a man with a wife and child, especially since George Theis, it sounds like, had a child by the age of 20.
2: Yeah, and I think it was the fact that Bruce put his music and put his career basically ahead of any relationship in his life, except maybe his bandmates, uh, gave him that opportunity to to just keep going. Uh, obviously, later in life, uh, you know, it might not have worked out. It didn't work out quite so smoothly, but it did help him at at, at that age and when he was in his uh, teens and 20s.
1: Yeah, that is an interesting question to pose, and we'll never know the answer to that one either. If Bruce had had more normal relationships at the time and maybe he had had a wife or something like that, would he not have risen to the top? Uh, we'll, we'll never know. But what we do know is that the road he took wound up to be extremely successful for him. And fortunately, looking at it from the outside, he appears to have a wonderful oh, he life. He definitely
2: has a wonderful life now. And I uh, wish I had a piece of that life or a piece of that half a billion dollars he got last summer. But uh, again, something I'll never have. Yeah, clearly
1: (laughs) 99.99999% of us are not going to have a half a billion dollars. And that's one of the things that's so incredible about Bruce that after all this amazing success and everything that he's become, he seems to remain so grounded. And as we know from following some other celebrities, (laughs) that's not always the case. So it's a real credit to him, I, I think for sure. And, and now should we move back to the rising yes, tour?
2: Let's do so. Last time we talked, Bruce had ramped up uh, the little down under leg in late March in New Zealand. And then he started a West Coast Canadian leg that started in April 9th in Sacramento, California. I believe, I believe you were there.
1: Yeah, I was there that night. And I remember it very vividly because that was the day the Saddam statue fell in Iraq, which sort of symbolized the end of the war. And there was a lot of euphoria because it seemed like the war was over. Of course, from there, the story gets a lot more complicated, as we know. But for that moment on that
2: day, it was pretty powerful. And set list wise, he pretty much picked up where he left off in, in New Zealand, opening with Born in the USA Acoustic, going into Who Will Stop the Rain. So he kept it very thematic.
1: Yeah, the war was clearly still on his mind. And I think those images had an impact on everyone that day. And Bruce, I I think it's safe to say, even though the statue fell and it seemed like things were going in the right direction, we know he did not approve of the war. He had made that clear back in the March shows. So definitely was a powerful opening to the show. Now, I'm actually I'm reading Bruce Bass as we're talking. I did not realize this, and I certainly didn't hear it that day, I See the Devils and Dust was sound checked. Was that the first time that that made
2: an appearance? Yes, it was. Uh, he sound checked it both in Sacramento and and at the next show in Vancouver. And I actually heard a version of it, and I forget where. And it sounds a lot like what, what was released, uh, that same kind of music. Um, I don't remember the lyrics. Lyrics were a bit different, but they were still very similar in, in, in the themes and, and the tones of it. That's interesting. I, I don't suppose that's out there for people to hear. I don't hear. think it is. Uh, I'm sorry if I if I blew anybody's cover, but uh, obviously it didn't. If it had made a bigger impact on me, I probably would remember more of it, but but it doesn't, or it didn't.
1: I, I notice also, now that you're talking about the Vancouver soundcheck, where it was played, Chimes of Freedom was also soundchecked that day. That's very interesting in light of what I was talking about from two days earlier and the and the statue falling. That wound up not being played. Yeah, it hasn't,
2: that song has not been but, played since the end of the uh, Amnesty tour. So, <laughs> And it was rehearsed before the Vote for Change tour, but obviously uh, never got played in a, in a show. Just uh, to wrap up
1: Sacramento, the most notable thing I remember about that show other than the opening was the performance of Jungleland. That was the first time that Jungle Lamb was played, I believe, in the States. Is that accurate on The it Rising is.
2: Tour? It is. It was it was uh, debuted just a few weeks earlier in, in Australia.
1: That seems incredible. Now I, I, I don't even think I recognize that, that all of two thousand and two
2: passed without <laughs>
1: Jungle lamb Yeah, being that played. is a
2: little weird, but uh, that's the way it that's the way it it, it happened. Uh, he obviously had other things he wanted to play. He had the, the new songs and he had the new set and it just it just didn't fit in quite at the moment until he found a way to. He, he finally made the pre into the fire slot more of an epic, like it was, uh, like the pre light of day slot was on the reunion tour. And then the
1: show ended with dancing in the dark and darling in the county, two fun songs off Born in the USA, which is I think the final impression he wanted to leave that night after the heavy. Well, often
2: the heavier the, the heavier the songs early in the show, the bigger the release is later in the show, and. This was obviously a night when uh, it was a heavy opening, and you got a hell of a release at the end.
1: Now, the rest of the run in April, he removed the Born in the USA acoustic opening, mostly going back to The Rising, and the sets otherwise continued in the same pattern. There was a tour premiere in Ottawa of I'm on Fire, and then another song that surprisingly hadn't been played to this point in the tour April nineteenth in Montreal, "Hungry Heart" was premiered. Again, I, it didn't even strike me that "Hungry Heart" hadn't been played until well. Now.
2: Considering every every show did include "Waiting on a Sunny Day," which included the the audience sing along, it's not really that surprising. It's almost like when you have both "Sunny Day" and "Hungry Heart" in the same show, that it gets a little redundant with the with the crowd sing alongs. But he did it later on, so I guess it. I guess it wasn't redundant in his mind. Following the completion of the Canadian dates,
1: Bruce then did a couple of one-offs. He had performed at the Hope Concert and Red Bank April 29th with Bon Jovi, Southside, Gary U.S. Bonds. It was a benefit for Bobby Bandiera's son, and the show opened with This Time It's For Real, much like the Pat King benefit had in the same building
2: 5 years yeah, earlier. Yeah, you had the Max Weinberg 7 there and get, so you had the Horns on 10th Avenue and kitty's back and Rosie and it was a it looked like a fun night. I the recordings aren't very good of it, but uh, my wife my wife was there. She had a great time and I would have loved to have been there for for the Gary US Bond stuff. I think to me that is the most uh the most interesting stuff of the night.
1: Yeah, they did this little girl and Jolie blown, which is always great to see and this little girl, I, I th- actually now that I, uh, we're we're talking, I've never seen this little girl because I wasn't at the 2012
2: Met Life hmm, shows. Okay, well, it's it's a fun. No, then you see him do it in light of day once with uh, Joe Greschecky, or or do you only consider the? Are you only talking about the the Bond's performances?
1: Oh, you may be right. Yeah, maybe I did see it because I, I think they did. Was it
2: 2015? I believe it was when he kind of came out halfway into the audience. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Oh, good. Well, now, now I feel good that I've seen (laughs) this little girl. And that was only him on on lead vocals on the, on the version from MetLife in 22 and or 12 (laughs) rather. And this performance in Red Bank, uh, he was sharing lead vocals. So you got to see him do it all by himself.
1: Right. That was a big night in 2015. And and speaking of big nights in Asbury two nights later, he did one of his private runs in country day school benefits and, I don't know. As we know, this continued over the years wh- when he would also do shows for Boston College. I-, I don't know how we get an invite to these. Yeah, well, you you got to be
2: either part of the Rumson Country Day School community to have been invited, and of which we are not. And there is a recording of half of one of these shows. I forget the year, but it, it's a fun listen with the covers and the Thunder Road and and Bruce. Bruce, you can hear Bruce doing the shots, and he does sound a little loose to say the least. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah. The set on April 30th, it opens with tellem and, and then they did green river and other rare covers like rambling gambling man and twisting the night away. I just, I, I mean, yeah. that's gotta be so awesome. So should they ever do one again? Uh, of course, we would love to invite. We'll cover it. We'll give it good. Well, press. I don't think Bruce's
2: kids are in any kind of school anymore. Uh, I believe the, even the youngest no. one is uh, will be thirty <laughs> early next year. So I think that that boat has sailed. All right. Well, uh, too bad for us. And then he closed out the the pre the pre European leg performances at the Stone Pony. We Susie Tyrell's record release party for her album White Lines. He and Patty both uh, came on stage for uh, Saint Genevieve. And then they also did It's All Over Now later on in the show.
1: Yeah, and of course, It's All Over Now was the song
2: that Susie sang at the Kansas City show oh, five years later that. when Bruce lost
1: his mind and started <laughs> letting everyone else but him say. I forgot
2: about that. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was a, a gimmicky show to say the least. And uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah all, talk about a show being all over the place. But anyway, that's not what we're here to discuss. <laughs> And then uh, just after a few days off, the tour moved on to European stadiums.
1: As we get into Europe now, now the main show we're going to focus on, and we're going to have a guest on to talk about the Milan show, which is both the final night and really the night that everyone talks about from this leg of the tour. Prior to Milan, and you're going to hear our guest reference this as well, the shows were Pretty standard, as we know from the one show that was released from the Rising Tour, the Helsinki Stadium show. That in and of itself is a very basic set list. I think a solid performance, but nothing earth shattering. And and from what we hear, that was pretty much the tone
2: of the entire leg. Well, look at, looking at this leg as as a whole, he... um. We can't say it was a standard set cuz he wasn't doing the same 24 songs or 27 songs every night. There were there was quite a bit of variation. It's just that there weren't a lot of tour debuts as as the tour progressed through Europe, but and at the same time the what he was mixing in was basically the same kind of deeper East Street catalog. We're talking the Two Hearts, we're talking Sherry Darling. Uh, Meeting across the river was played. You got kitties back. Incident showed up. Tenth Avenue made his tour proper debut, but he really wasn't pushing the envelope too much at, at this point in the tour. And there were some great shows over there. The I know the show on his anniversary, June eighth, where he dedicated tougher to Patty, and then the two Gothenburg shows, they were stellar. Uh, all of them are represented in, in quality uh, recordings from Crystal Cat or, or, or fan based. But there really wasn't too much, as I said, envelope pushing. That would really come later, later in the year. To me, the coolest
1: thing is the use of the acoustic openers on a lot of these nights. The first three shows of the leg one opened with Born in the USA acoustic, as he'd been doing in Australia and the states. Then Darkness on the Edge of Town opened acoustic, This Hard Land acoustic. So I think that that's really cool, and it and it changes the feel of the show at. And I, and I think the acoustic openings in general on that tour were highly effective.
2: And one you, you didn't, you didn't mention was, was the river. It, as we talked yeah, about that's in the last cool episode, one. it made a couple of appearances in that short European uh, leg in October. And it returned here for just, I believe it was just one time. That was a show show in Brussels on, on May 12th. But we also finally got the full, full band, full E Street band performance of, of the river and, if uh if memory serves, it was the first time that they had done that version the like the the quote unquote original version uh since october of of nineteen eighty eight so it's been fifteen years since the since the e street band have been able to really play that
1: of course on the reunion tour it was in the rearranged version. The other thing that really catches my eye looking at this leg the may twenty fourth show in paris which had some cool tour debuts, but also had an acoustic preset consisting of does this bus stop grown up in this hard land. That is the first time he did that in a European stadium, right?
2: Yeah, I believe so. And it would become a regular occurrence um, about 10 years later in, in in 2012 and 13. And I shouldn't say regular cause it really wasn't every night, but it was definitely uh, it's definitely a cool thing when it happens and, I you know I remember at the time being like what the hell he's going to do this now and yeah that w- that was pretty awesome and I think another tour debut you really need to mention from this from this Paris show is Seven Nights to Rock which be, which would become a regular part of the encore from now through the end of the tour and beyond and beyond but I was just thinking about this tour <laughs> so I uh, understand all right all right because I because he played it in uh, in closing night at Shea.
1: Let's talk about the June 16th show in Helsinki, because that is the show that is released. Now, we have been very clear, and I think everyone agrees with us on this, this is not the show anyone would have picked to release if you were only going to pick one show from this tour, but it is the show that we have. It's a good and It's a very solid representation of this point in the tour and overall, I think, what he was doing on the Rising tour.
2: Well, there are two key songs that were included uh, in in the show that we so that we have on the releases. The first is "You're Missing," just a beautiful, beautiful song one of, one of my favorites uh, from the live shows. And then "Worlds Apart," which obviously has not been played since August twenty eighth of two thousand three, as 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 we'll talk later. And so, to me, those were the key songs from from that tour. I would also like to have "Counting on a Miracle." kind of release quality but obviously that's that's not going to happen it appears
1: not and as we know we want every song pretty much that was represented on a given tour or at least as many of the songs as possible on these archive releases and (laughs) i don't know how many times we can go back to this point but it's just so so sad and ridiculous that that there's only one from the rising tour but that is the (laughs) way it is
2: well yeah as i uh... As I prep for tonight's episode, I went back and listened to my compilations from from the summer of 2003 in Europe and then uh, the United States or or North America in uh, July through October. And it's just so frustrating. In some ways, this tour may have been better than the reunion tour. I think you and I, we both have a very huge soft spot for the reunion tour because it was the first time we really followed the East Rebound around. But in terms of the breadth of material, that he performed on stage, I think the rising tour just basically, uh, kicks the uh, reunion tour's butt in that regard and so many cool songs that they did and all of it is just lost. And it's just, yeah, just frustrating. It's sad. And it's, it's uh, yeah. Way to fuck that up guys. (laughs) Said it before. uh, I'll sing it again.
1: I, I still think the reunion tour was better. That's the one that I prefer. I think that because the reunion tour, uh, Granted, you went to Europe. I didn't, although you saw an arena show, not a stadium show. To me, the key thing about the reunion tour was that the entire U.S. tour was in arenas, and we got those long stands, the 15 nights, the Meadowlands, the 10 nights, the Garden, except for the one stand that we're going to discuss very, very shortly. That's never been done again, and those long stands were so amazing and and so unique, that th- that's one of the reasons why I favored the reunion tour. And, and just overall, I thought the average show, you know, if you take the Anaheim release, uh, it, it, you didn't have to be in New York or New Jersey or or L.A. or Philly on the reunion tour. There were amazing shows all over the place. And that's not to say that wasn't the case on this tour, because as we've been talking about now for three episodes there are a tremendous number of high-quality shows on this tour. But I, I think on the stadium leg here, and as we're about to talk about in America, for the first half of the stadium leg in America, I think it was fairly routine. Then, of course, as we're going to discuss, I'm sure, in detail, there was a switch. And and then things changed pretty dramatically.
2: Yeah, things definitely blew up. And I was I would say you didn't have to be in a... In, in New York, New Jersey, to hear a great show. I am looking at you, Buffalo. Um, looking at you, Hartford, um, in two thousand three. So that's oh he, yeah. I kind of feel like uh, he compressed the ten nights of rarities from the garden into three nights at Shea. But uh, we'll talk. We'll talk about that right. in, in in a bit.
1: Is there anything else between Helsinki and now, as we get to Milan, which is a very notable show that we need to mention?
2: Well, I, I mentioned earlier the, the two shows in Gothenburg. He, of course, had to bring out the Stadium Breaker, uh, Twist and Shout both nights. He he really enjoys that reputation of breaking the stadium. <laughs> he does. I mean, it's been a it's been a even on tours where he hasn't played it every night. He he he's done it every tour and in, in Gothenburg. But I think those two shows are uh, June twenty first and June twenty second. Really strong shows obviously there might be some recording bias on that because crystal cat released two, two amazing releases of each of, of the shows. And there were some good stuff in there racing in the street, you know, Jackson cage. That was always a good one, but I do want to mention one more thing actually in Austria, how the next show, June 25th, mm-hmm. uh, he was doing Ramrod. And as you know, he, he would do the, uh, you know, what time is it? Uh, is it time to go home? And he does that whole shtick. But when he did it in in Vienna, instead of going back into Ramrod, he started the he started the lyrics to roll over Beethoven. Yeah. And it it wasn't like he just dropped a couple of lines. He sang it for like three minutes. And maybe it's the fact that the music is so generic for both for these two songs, Ramrod and Beethoven. The band kept playing Ramrod, but he was singing Roll Over Beethoven. It was uh, one of those really special, cool moments that lost to uh, their, their hard drives. <laughs> that is cool. And then the next show was the European finale in Milan, Italy on June 28th. And that's a kind of a legendary show for a variety of reasons. So we wanted to get uh, someone who was there to, to really talk about it. And so we've invited Sal Trepot. He is the founder of Point Blank Magazine, and he's seen almost 200 Springsteen shows. So from Barcelona, Spain, Sal, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hello, Flynn and Hal. How are you? Nice talking to Good. you. and Thanks for having me on the show.
2: Of course. I'm a big fan, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. We we appreciate that, and thanks for joining us today. So he only did uh, seven shows in in Europe in 2002. It was almost a trailer for the 2003 three tour, and then that ended in Milan. As I said, the fans were a little bit intense, were they not? Can you describe what it was like being there? <laughs>
0: Yes, well, I ca- I have to tell you that uh, I was not a big fan of the Rising Tour back then, especially the way it started. And-, and then finally, when I saw the first show in Barcelona in 2002, it changed my mind, you know. Uh, then the next year, again, I went to see him in three stadiums. And I didn't have the feeling it was so good as in 2002. But uh, I had to see him one last chance, so one last time. So I went to Milano because of the fame with the fans and Italians being so crazy about Bruce. And I was really surprised. I was really surprised. First off, I have to tell you that uh, when I'm at the show and the intro music uh, is Once Upon a Time in the West by Ennio Morricone, that and the opening with The Promised Land already set high expectations for me and they were clearly fulfilled and I
1: It's interesting because Flynn just brought to my attention earlier today that there's a video of the complete show on YouTube. So I went and I started watching a little of it. And the performance on even some of the songs that would be played more regularly, like Darkness, it just seemed like the band was really locked in.
0: I I agree with that. In fact, uh, after The Promised Land, he played the regular songs like The Rising and Lonesome Day. I thought they were well-executed, and and then they were followed by My Love Will Let You Down and Darkness on the Edge of Town, where well, you could notice that there was a particular intensity going on, you know? And then by the by the time that he played the river, it started to rain, and it quickly became a, a torrential rain. It, it, it was really, really crazy. We were all completely soaked wet in, in just a minute. You could see a big black cloud right over the stadium and gallons of heavy rain pouring over us. It was even a bit scary, to tell you the truth, because uh, there was thunder and lightning, so we weren't sure if the show would go on. But I think that's what the what made the show special, besides the uh, the performance too.
2: Well, one performance I really want to want to ask about is is waiting on a sunny day. Now I know now it's not one of my <laughs> favorites, but yeah. at the time it was it was a new song and it really got the crowd into it. And as you said, by then the rain was pouring down. And he, but he was, as you said, it seemed to energize him. I mean, he was all over that stage during that song.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, as you said, it's it's not maybe our favorite song, but back then it was different. It was a new song. I wasn't tired of, of listening to it so many times. Uh, and the rain was so crazy then that I thought that uh, Bruce would hide under the roof of the stage, but he didn't. He went down to the audience during that song. Uh, he got soaked immediately uh and he went to every side of the stage you know like uh wanting to be part of the of the audience and i remember that someone threw him a, a white hat which he wore uh, which you probably have seen pictures of him with that hat oh it's a great and,
2: picture it's it's an amazing picture that people need yeah we'll <laughs> need to check out
0: yeah the red picture right with a white hat it looks yeah. great. And that was really a, a a great moment to 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 watch be, being there, no? The, the fact that he was he wasn't afraid of, of 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 the water, of the rain, and and joining the audience in that moment, and, and it was great. And and really, uh, it's not my favorite song, but it was a, a really great moment. And the Italian audience went crazy, totally crazy. That that's part of what made the night special, you know? The audience.
1: And of course, he then followed that up with Who'll Stop the Rain, which, as we've discussed before, gets played. <laughs> Contrary really to its the meaning of the song, but he uses it when the rain is pouring down. And what do you remember about that? How did the crowd respond in this lightning and thunder now that they were doing Who'll Stop the Rain? I think that
0: the first minutes that it was raining, maybe people didn't like it. I didn't like it. I know I didn't like it. But we were so so quickly that uh, after a few minutes we didn't we didn't care anymore, you know. And after waiting on a sunny day, which as I said, it was a great version of it of this song. Who Stopped the Rain came and it's not only one of my favorite songs, but it was totally unexpected. Well, we know he's been doing it so often when when it rains, you know, but at at that moment we didn't know what's coming next and it was a really powerful moment. It was very well played and it reminded me of the the way he used to do it in 1981 and 1984. It really felt great to hear it and at this point I think nobody cared anymore about, about the rain, you know. So it was a big surprise uh, to to hear that song and so well performed in in that particular moment.
2: And I'm sure, growing up, which was the next song, it I'm sure it was received uh, quite enthusiastically by the crowd. It was one for the old fans out there.
0: That was a big surprise. I mean, "Who Stopped the Rain" was surprising, but this 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 really shocked me. I, I really, really didn't expect to to hear "Growing Up." In Italy, in that tour, in that moment, because it's not a song that he plays often. Even on that tour, I think he played it like five or six times, maybe, no more. And again, the whole stadium was singing along as they had been doing for a while, and it was really, really well well received. And it was nice because Bruce told a story in the middle of the song, as he's 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 been doing in previous tours but this time he was in italian which was greatly appreciated by the audience he basically told them that uh, he remembered the first the first time that he played there at the same venue back in 1985 and how everyone was screaming bruce 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 which is the way they pronounce bruce if you if you say it in italian and he remembered how crazy the fans were you know and ended the story saying like now i have come back home we have grown together thank you And that was big for the Italians, really. Oh, wow. that was great. And he he also told in, in the in the story that Italian fans were really pazzi, pazzi, molto pazzi, which means they are totally crazy. Which they are. <laughs> it,
1: it looks it on the video. That's quite a scene.
2: Now, of course, the one of the bigger highlights of, of the show was was follow that dream, which uh, which followed Mary's place, and was I assume you were not expecting that one either, even though he had sound checked
0: no, not at all, and I I didn't hear the soundcheck, so uh, I I really knew nothing about about this. And yeah, it was it was again a, a surprising thing, you know, that that he was he would do that song that I had I think I had never seen that before, and uh, and it's I think it's he played even less than than growing up. It's really it's really strange that he I don't know why he decided to play that, but uh, it took me by surprise and it was totally unexpected, and it was a very very sweet version. It's really nice.
1: It seems to me like that may have been a tribute to the European fans on the
2: occasion of the final night in Europe. Well, he also introduced he- it as a as a as a song for Italy, which I mean, obviously he said it in Italian, but uh but yeah, he dedicated it to, to them.
0: I think from that moment on the because of the rain and the surprises and the response from the audience, the the show went one step higher and it was really really great. You know, one of those nights that everything goes so well that you, you forget about the world. You're just there at the show at the moment and and, and having such a great time and, and thinking, wow, this is one of the great shows. And I'm happy I, I, I came to Italy for this show because, as I said, I, I saw the three shows in stadiums in Spain, which were good, but something was missing. Maybe it's because I was uh, sitting and not you know, in the beat because of the distance... Uh, I didn't love those shows that much. So I'm glad I went to Italy for this final show in, in Europe. And it was really, really great. I remember Ramrod, for instance, where, where he did all these jokes about, is it quitting time? It's boss time. And the, the atmosphere was so great at that moment.
1: John Landau has often spoken about this show. I think he said it's one of his personal favorites. Uh, Flynn, do you recall that?
2: I believe he has said that he has mentioned it a couple of times. I don't know if he said it's one of his one of his favorites, but it's definitely uh, one of it's definitely up there at least from this era. And of course, he appeared
1: on stage for the final two songs. The encore's went along pretty normally with "My City of Ruins" and "Land the Pope, and Dreams." With people get ready at the end, and then. He went into Dancing in the Dark, Landau came out and Dancing in the Dark was followed by the European tour premiere of a song that oddly has not been played much in the reunion era in Europe. And that, of course, is Rosalita.
0: And I think it was the only time he played it in Europe on that tour because if I remember correctly, he did it in Sydney in March uh, and then at the show. and. Again, it, it, it took me really by surprise. I, I thought really that the show was over after dancing in the dark when he was finishing the song. But without stop, uh, he started playing Rosalita. And I remember it was an explosion of joy as as soon as Bruce played the first notes. I mean, we all went crazy, nuts, loco, pazzi, whatever you want to say, as they say in Italian. Uh, he hadn't played Rosie in a very long time. And I remember everyone around me was dancing, jumping, smiling. Uh, there couldn't be a better ending. I think we were all in a state of euphoria by then and celebrating and having such a great time with with that song. It was fantastic.
2: Actually, I think it was the first performance of Rosie in Europe since 1985, uh, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, the only time, of course, it was played on the reunion tour was August 12th at the Meadowlands, so it it was a long gap
2: there for when
1: Rosie was not played in Europe.
2: Right. And What's really cool is that Crystal Cat released this one as as a bootleg um, mm-hmm. and it's it's I can't say it's one of their better sounding ones i I assume the rain played a major factor in that, but what's cool about the recording is that when Rosie starts, you hear these sounds of, of disbelief and, and amazement from people around the taper before they just exploded with joy. Sounds like that's what happened to you
0: I think that's a perfect description. It really, we were in disbelief and, and with this euphoria, you know, because the show had been so great that we thought it was ending and then, bam, it, this push with with Rosalita was really unbelievable. Uh, I think it was a show where Bruce and the band were giving an extra push or whatever you want to call it, uh, something that makes a show special where you have that feeling that they went the extra mile. It just felt great to be there, you know. Certainly it was a special night to close the European tour. For me, it was a me- memorable night, really and i have to say though that the italian fans were essential that night and they really pushed the energy level it was really an incredible audience they have the fame in italy and but it's really true it's really true that they are all so enthusiastic about bruce so crazy it's fantastic
2: so, so you really had a situation where the band and the and the audience were really feeding off each other and you kind of had a snowball effect absolutely of, of yes. energy
0: absolutely it's yeah, the, yeah. It's that, the that's,
2: old one plus one equals three right
0: yes <laughs> I have to say that the year before I was in Bologna and it was a similar feeling. You know, we was in a small arena. The show was really great too. And also the audience went totally nuts. It was crazy, really, really. I don't know where they get this enthusiasm from because the audiences in Spain are great too. But I think in Italy there's something else, something magic. And when you're there with with that kind of audience And, and especially when Bruce has a night like this one in Milano.
1: Well, Sal, thank you so much for giving us some color on this show. Uh, as Flynn said, a legendary show from this tour, and we wanted to get deeply into it, and you've given us great stuff. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Hal. Thank you, Flynn. Thank you for having me. It's great talking to you.
1: Once again, that was Sal Trepod and we thank him for beaming in from Barcelona. And now... This has run a lot longer than I expected. I have to say, I know we were going to go
2: through the entire
1: American leg, but it seems like that's <laughs> going to be a whole hour or so. Oh, don't at you least, think? Uh,
2: yeah, we just spent a lot of time talking about Europe, and obviously, we have a lot more to say about uh, about the summer in, in the United States and early fall. So, yeah, let's save that for one more episode. We'll drag it out one more. Certainly, the final
1: month of that leg needs close examination. There was a lot of interesting stuff that was played and i i
2: think we want to make sure that we give the shea stand enough oh, time as well absolutely that's going to be a lot of fun uh reliving that stuff will be living reliving those shows will be a lot of fun all
1: right so we'll come back the next time we promised the rising tour will conclude we'll do the rest of the american stadium dates and then the episode after that, we're going to take a look at the 50th anniversary of The Wild and the Innocent. Flynn is going to be attending
2: the symposium at the Springsteen Archives, yes, right? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. The greetings one, as we talked about in January, was it was a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to seeing to seeing what they do with, with this album, with The Wild and the Innocent. Yeah, of course, I won't be there, but I'll look forward to your report. And
1: with that, I'm going to wrap it up. None But the Brave is a presentation of Evergreen Podcast, produced by Bull Market Entertainment. You can check out our Patreon offerings at patreon.com slash Podcast. On Twitter, you can interact with us
2: at Podcast. So thanks again once more to Sal Trapot for joining us. And for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean, saying thanks for listening. And we'll see you further on up the road.
1: Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you.